0: Hello, I'm Grayson Bulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. On today's episode, I sat down with Greg Otto, Chief Cybercrime Reporter, Intel 471. The conversation was awesome. Greg pulled back the curtain on the current state of cybersecurity, what's happening, who's attacking who, why we can't bring people to justice. We've talked about the TV show Cops, which was great for the record. It ran for a long time. But then Greg said something super, super interesting. There's an FBI cybercrime report came out which is 43% of all cybercrime is business email compromise. I repeat, 43% of all cybercrime is business email compromise. You would think from reading the headlines, it's ransomware. No, it's business email compromise. And Greg talks about the economic impact that it's having and what companies can do to keep their emails safe. It's a really wonderful conversation that really makes you think twice before you connect something to the internet. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks, pleasure to be here. Happy to have you here. Today's August 25th, and it's a big day in the cyber world as executives some of the largest technology companies in the world are at the White House as we speak. They're there for policy purposes, but I'd like for you to pull back the curtain. What's really going on in cybersecurity in the world of cyber espionage, attacks, ransomware? Because you read a news article and says, well, this person got hit with this. This company got hit with that. But there's no real context to actually what's going on. It just seems like it's more headlines than anything.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. And I guess the best way to uh, frame it, as far as cybersecurity is concerned, it really is a pandemic when you talk about ransomware. And I don't mean to say that to sound cute because even without what we're going through right now, I would still consider what is going on with ransomware to be a pandemic. That's how, from an idea perspective, that's how often this is happening. Companies, large and small, are constantly being hit with ransomware and having their entire IT systems locked up until these actors get their payments. And if they don't get their payments, they are more than happy to dump the data out into the public internet for anybody to take advantage of. And it's causing hundreds of thousands of dollars to tens of millions of dollars in losses, depending on how big the company is that gets hit with ransomware. And it's happening more and more and more this i would say started around 2017 or 2018 we started to see a little bit of an uptick of companies being locked now it's moved to the point where it's so aggressive that we see some of the stories that we've seen in 2021 particularly the colonial pipeline ransomware attack is probably the big one that sticks out in everybody's minds and that is one of the more dangerous ones that we have seen just because of what it could actually mean for the public. I mean, we saw the run on gas stations that occurred due to the ransomware attack, which really wasn't directly caused by the ransomware attack. With a lot of these ransomware attacks, a lot of companies are out a lot of money, and that's where it really has stopped. You have something like the Colonial Pipeline hack And um, suddenly we're talking about an attack that is affecting people in their day to day lives, like really affecting modern society outside of a company just basically writing a check or, or opening up their insurance policy. The Colonial Pipeline attack really shows what can be possible when a company that everyday American society is dependent upon is hit with a ransomware attack.
0: You're spot on to call cyber espionage and attacks a pandemic you're not the only individual to call it a pandemic Evan Greenberg chairman and CEO of Chubb probably one of the most world-renowned insurance companies if not one of the best insurance companies in the world is call is publicly calling a pandemic so with mr Greenberg you're in very good company Greg <laughs> you mentioned 2017 and 2018 with the impact on society were those the hospital attacks that were ca- like I think I believe there's one in Los Angeles that caught the news where people were like Oh, there's hospital records frozen for a ransomware. This is a real issue. It's affecting a patient that has vital. If
1: it wasn't 2018, it was 2019. And yes, so the hospital in Los Angeles that did get hit with a ransomware attack, I would say that that was the first harbinger of how bad things were going to get. Because yes, up until then, I would say that it was, and this is, I guess you consider it run of the mill now. It's certainly not run-of-the-mill if you're a company being hit, but a company would be hit, small and medium-sized business, and they'd have everything locked up. They'd get a notice that said, we're not gonna be able to unlock anything until you give us a certain amount of uh, ransom paid in cryptocurrency, and then we will unlock everything for you. The fees and the ransoms that were being paid out at that point, I would put them below the radar, like they were maybe, $10,000, $20,000 in a vacuum that is not, you know, that's not something that you just want to brush off, but it was enough that it kept it low profile from law enforcement. Basically, now with this hospital attack, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in ransoms, but also a threat to lockup systems that are guarding human life. Once you start to talk about loss of life with a cyber attack, you're starting to push it into a realm that you know, a lot more people than law enforcement are going to want to figure out a way to stop this. And th- that is how you've seen policymakers start to get on board, whether it's been policymakers at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. And you've seen a lot with public-private partnerships where a lot of the government entities are working with either nonprofits or they're working with uh, standards organizations or they're working with private companies to figure out ways to stop these attacks from happening because like you were just saying with the los angeles hospital response that 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 was the first real harbinger that oh this isn't just about a robbery necessarily this can cause damage beyond just monetary loss
0: for that attack i want to give credit to the los angeles times because they did an incredible job shining a light on the serious impact it had they had Reporters were constantly covering the case, talking about the, the real-world impact. So thank you, LA Times, for, for bringing that incident to a more mainstream, more vocal audience. What is causing this this rise of ransom? Is it the ransomware as a service trends? Because it seems that these hackers or bad actors, they, they play this little game and they go so far, but we haven't seen somebody cross the line where you're going to get an international response where you've got a hospital treating COVID patients, they hit a ransomware attack and that you're going to get a worldwide response. Do these guys kind of toe up to the line but don't necessarily go over the line or they're just going for whatever they can get?
1: So uh, let's, let's break down a lot of that here. So wh- what you were talking about with like what basically supports this ecosystem, it's a lot of different things. Like there's not just one big thing that has caused ransomware to proliferate. It's a lot of little things and I'll try to break them down. One is that it is very, very hard to protect a company especially in terms of what is placed to the internet like what is connected to the internet basically it is very very hard for companies and the larger they scale obviously the bigger the problem is it is a very very hard thing to wrap your arms around all of the assets that you may have connected to the internet there are all of these vulnerabilities that could be out there that and it's not by negligence it's just by sheer scale that all all a cyber criminal needs is one way in and, i mean it doesn't have to be a negligent thing where it's like you leave the front door open like in in terms of uh, a metaphor they could be literally crawling uh, under the door jam basically and it's because you didn't have uh, a, the, the updated door jam that these hackers are getting in but that's that's only one you know one spoke of the wheel there another thing that enables it also is cryptocurrency cryptocurrency uh, is really the method by which this is paid there's no real transfer of like cash or fiat money or wiring anything like that through the traditional financial ecosystem it's all through it's all through bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that are a little bit more based in privacy that are used to move money, and you can hide behind them and and not really know who you're sending the money to. Yes, there are ways to trace them, but it's not as as easily traceable as you know fiat currency is. So allowing payments through cryptocurrency has really poured fire or poured gasoline on the fire of these attacks. And then also, and this is uh, one of the big things uh, I I think probably the biggest thing. Uh, as well. A a lot of this ecosystem is powered by young men in Russia or Eastern Europe that are essentially given safe harbor by their governments. We, as in the United States, don't have extradition treaties with Russia or a lot of these Eastern European countries, and they are basically allowed to run rampant. And we, we've seen that really power what's happening with ransomware. If you're not going to be arrested for your crimes, well, why would you ever, why would you ever cease doing them? I mean, the, the U.S. has sh- sanctioned countries and entities that allow these hackers to proliferate. But I mean, what's that going to do if they're not leaving the country? Yes, we have seen people be arrested, but that's only if these young men are brazen enough to take a vacation to a country where we do have extradition treaties. And we have done that. We have absolutely uh, arrested people that work in these cybercrime gangs once they go on some lavish vacation and we bring them to the U.S. and we prosecute them. But that's, uh, you know, those are very rare occasions based on the volume of ransomware attacks that we see. So. It's the safe harbor, the use of cryptocurrency, and the fact that there are just a lot of vulnerabilities in a lot of companies that are very, very tough to patch and replace and fix. So you mix all of that together, and it really is a powder keg for the ransomware ecosystem that we're seeing today.
0: When you look at a, a country that's safe harboring a criminal to me, it seems that like there's got to be an economic incentive there where the criminal is paying the country X amount of dollars to operate there. Am I reading into this right? You've seen this in the global commodities trade. Look at uh, the, the the oil embargoes of Iran and, and Cuba. Like We've seen countries give safe harbor, and then there's some sort of economic stimulus there. Are we seeing that on the cyber side as well?
1: So we are seeing a relationship, but I don't really think it's economic. What I think it is is the states have now realized, especially Russia and Iran uh, does this as well, that they provide safe harbor because the skills that these cyber criminals exhibit when they carry out ransomware attacks can also be used for espionage purposes. And now we're starting to see that the lines between primarily financial-driven attacks and espionage-driven attacks, you used to be able to draw uh, a line that would separate the two. Now that line is starting to become blurred, especially with Russia. Russia gives safe harbor to these criminals because they know that they can be able to co-opt them into an espionage operation if need be. And we've seen that uh, before because otherwise uh, there would be no benefit. They're, They're just... Criminals, but Russia and Iran and even China and North Korea, we've seen them, you know, give safe harbor to these criminals because they know that they can almost act as, if need be, an outsourced contractor if they need those skills for a certain espionage uh, operation. So there is some uh, quid pro quo happening there. I mean, especially in Russia, it, it, it shows how brazen that these ransomware operators are and these cybercriminals are john oliver just did a uh, very very good breakdown of uh, ransomware from like a 30,000 foot view anybody watching listening I'd suggest going to watch it one of the i did not know this until i watched this one of the big cybercriminals in terms of like organized ransomware as a service gangs is a gentleman named maxim yakubets Uh, He's been known for a while. He's probably been around uh, for a decade. Oliver ran a clip, and I had never seen this before, of him driving a probably $250,000 sports car doing donuts in the middle of Moscow with a license plate on the front of his car that translates to thief. I mean, these guys are not scared of being arrested at all. I mean, that's just not the behavior of somebody that's afraid of what law enforcement can do or thinks that they need to keep a um, a small profile. It, it, it really goes to show that the safe harbor has done a lot to help these gangs sort of proliferate.
0: I want to stand that the, the TV theme here, John Oliver, you know, pretty large audience, but not a large audience is the TV show Cops. Cop was a, was a great show ran for like 20 years and when you heard that song with Inner Circle's Bad Boys Bad Boys what you going to do what you going to do when we come for you people knew that the TV show was on they were engaged at stupid stuff not to do why don't we do one of those for cybersecurity and P- the pub- American public becomes educated about the risk they start calling their congressmen and senators we're going to be forced to act and then all suddenly a lot of these safe hours we're just going to put pressure on you we can the United States can put put economic pressure on these countries to start turning over some of these these bad actors, we can, if we, or you can go the UN route. Do you think it's a matter of the American public saying, you know what, enough of the shenanigans going on, it's time for Congress to take action?
1: That, that is a very loaded question, because I think for years now, Congress has really struggled to wrap their head around this. And I think the public has really struggled too, because with cybersecurity, a lot of this isn't tangible. Like with with your cops analogy there, like I can watch somebody be arrested for assault or robbery or something like that. That is a easy concept to understand. With transnational gangs hitting U.S. companies on the Internet, all of it is code. I mean, a, a lot of it is executed in code. I mean, I can show you a picture of a guy that, you know, might be in his basement and, has a hoodie and, it, and it's dark and it's very brooding. But I mean, that that's a stereotype at this point. That's really not the way that that this works. I mean, this is these are young young men and, and women that are very technically savvy that are doing this as a, a means of income. Like you would never know that they're doing these crimes unless you are super tapped in and know this is happening. There's that from the public uh, perspective. From the congressional perspective, it just goes back to the the safe harbor and what I was talking about there. Congress knows this is going on. The federal government knows this is going on. And I guarantee you people like Maxim Jakobetz and other people that are, are at the tops of these gangs, they're known entities. Like whether they are known from an intelligence perspective, like the CIA or the NSA or any help from that perspective or from a law enforcement perspective, whether it's the FBI or some other entity at the, the Department of Justice, they know who's doing this. It's hard to bring them to justice. It's extremely hard to bring them to justice when they're in a country that quite frankly, we, we don't have good relationships with right now. There's a lot of diplomatic red tape even when we get along with a country to expedite a criminal. So when you're talking about a country that is a known adversary of the US, it's, it's very, very hard to bring people to justice enough that if somebody is saying enough's enough, and there are a lot of people saying enough's enough, but we can't do anything about it other than actually sending Law enforcement into Moscow or Saint Petersburg or Moldova or wherever, and that's causing an international incident. And now suddenly, we've got way bigger problems on our hand than somebody that has locked up a beef supplier for a few days.
0: You got an interesting coalition being formed. You got the American public, you got big business, and you got the insurance industry. Reinsurance news is is publicly projecting that the June 2017 Peta No Peta cyber attack cost the insurance and reinsurance markets $3.3 billion. That's real money. A $3.3 billion loss is real money. When do some of these, insur- these very well K Street lobbyists step up and say, enough's enough, you got to do something. We're going to stop giving campaign contributions to your campaign until you can at least make some progress on this. And I'll give you an example. There was the, um, going back to DVD world when we still had DVDs, The movie studios, so the MPAA uh, under Jack Warner, like they were going out there and they were going from country to country and they were stopping these bootleg operations. And now it's, it's run under um, Chris Dodd and they're doing a really great job. Why can't that be done? Even if it's just, let's just call it um, like, you know, you're putting. Okay. So you're going to hit the three foot putt and then you're going to hit the six foot putt. Just the small actors start to get a reputation The United States is not playing around anymore. We're bringing people to justice.
1: So from the insurance perspective, to use your putting metaphor, it is really the insurance industry is just learning how to play golf and learning like they've gotten into the beginning phase that they're now through the beginning phase where we've offered. They've offered cyber insurance and people have signed up for it. But now they're learning that, oh, wait, this doesn't really equate to what we've been doing all along. So to take the golf metaphor, it would be like the insurers went out to their local municipal golf course that, you know, isn't isn't really difficult, isn't gonna host a PGA tournament and went, oh, I can play with this game. And then they decided that they wanted to go to St. Andrews and think that they were going to shoot like a professional does. And they ended up shooting like 120. Like they're realizing that the level of difficulty here in figuring out how this uh, industry works does not fit with their previous model. And, you know, it's funny, I was just reading a story. Full disclosure, I used to work for a cybersecurity news outlet called CyberScoop. And they recently published an article on uh, some upheaval with the cyber insurance industry where they've realized that, wait a minute, we're getting hammered here. We're just taking hundreds of millions of dollars in losses because they weren't able to plug in data to their actuarial tables, like let's take flood insurance, for instance, with flood insurance, you can look up weather data and neighborhood data and sort of figure out, you know, how often is this area going to flood? And based on how often is that area going to flood, how much I'm going to charge people that live in this area? You can't plug that model into what's happening with cyber attacks because it just varies way, way too much. There's way too many variables to put together any sort of trend data that you can then pull off a policy against, and 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 uh, fix a price tag to. So the insurance companies are really starting to figure out that, whoa, okay, wait a minute. We need to revisit our model completely and whether that means prices are going to go up or they just get out of it, out of the cyber insurance business completely. Which it would be a very, very interesting development only because as You know, six, seven years ago, everybody thought that cyber, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people thought that cyber insurance was going to come and sort of be uh, the panacea, be the backstop to a lot of the problems with cybersecurity. And it just hasn't been that case because the insurers are losing money on it. So there's a lot of upheaval and there needs to be a change that comes with that. But taking that further and going back to what you were saying, the insurers turning around and saying to Congress, like, you need to do something uh, about this. Cyber insurance is still such a small piece of insurance companies overall policy portfolios that that's not going to cause enough of an upheaval for the insurance companies to turn around and say, oh, congressman or senator, like, you you need to figure this out. The congressman and the senators are really going to get that from the companies that have been hit or the critical infrastructure or the Department of Justice to say, uh, this is a problem that we do not currently have the tools to solve. And we need some legislative fixes if we are ever going to solve it.
0: You're 100% correct about premiums. The insurance companies are going to have to do something. They're dominating the Earnings calls. AIG is publicly talking about it multiple times in their earnings calls. And I'm going to go back to Evan Greenberg again, chairman and CEO of Chubb, because he stated the following on the Q4 2020 earnings call, which I'd like to read to you. I have said for a number of quarters that the next pandemic, the exposure that looks like a virus, is cyber related because there's no geographic or time bound to it. We've seen a number of events over the recent years that give a glimmer of that. So it's complicated, and the product has to evolve to recognize that kind of exposure, both on the frequency side and the severity side, right between the lines, the premiums going to go up. What they cover is going to be narrowed, and so you've got this incredible intelligence on cyber. You're, I'm going to call you Mister Encyclopedia of Cyber here, and I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot because I'd love to know if you're Mister Insurance. How is the insurance product going to have to evolve?
1: It is going to have to dictate what companies are doing and and basically dictate the high baseline that should be there to begin with on uh, cybersecurity inside companies. Like, that's just the way that it's going to have to work, because I, I think that is part of the message that is going on at the White House meeting that is happening that, you know, it was really funny, I read the guest lists to that meeting and notice that it was a lot of CEOs and not CISOs, which is for those that don't know that acronym, the chief information security officer. Normally the chief information security officer would be the point person for a company on cybersecurity. No, not this time. It was CEOs from across the board. And the message has been basically that look, two things need to happen inside your companies. There needs to be one, a lot more training and two, for that training training and beyond you're going to need to cough up a lot more money and if you're going to cough up that money that message is also going to come from the insurers because the insurers are going to have their plans and if they are going to have to cover their losses they're going to make sure that you're at that high enough baseline that you are protected against all of these things that have been going on in that baseline Right now, we're seeing it a little bit where the insurance companies that are offering plans are saying that you need to use the the tools and the software and the security apparatus that we have checked off, basically. And so that is already being instituted. And then at that point, if it's if it's not enough, you're just going to see more and more baselines that are added on top of these plans to say that, okay, if you're not at this baseline, and you undergo a cyber attack and you're not at this baseline, we're not going to pay you out or you're going to be at a loss uh, anyway. So that's really what is going to be driven home by the insurance companies because it's also going to be the message that comes from the White House, which is going to trickle down to the CEOs, which is eventually going to trickle down into the companies anyway, is that you need to be spending more money on securing your infrastructure because right now what you're doing is not good enough. You're right on that, but you're also going to see,
0: I believe, legal departments start to shift the, the liability to vendors that are either working on-premise or connecting to systems, and those vendors will be required to carry some sort of cyber liability in, along with their general stuff there. But can you really, truly, 100% secure something that's connected to the internet, or do you have to be the guy that unplugs it and
1: puts it in a safe and has an armed guard to secure it? You can't you can't be 100% safe if you're connecting it to the Internet. So you bring up the legal side of things and illegal is a part of it. But what it really gets down to is risk management and risk management. uh, I will admit it is it is very, very boring to talk about. I mean, but when it comes to cybersecurity, that is really what we're talking about here. It is what amount of risk are you willing to assume as a company when you connect stuff to the internet, and it's a conversation that yeah, your security team needs to be on, your financial team needs to be on, your legal team needs to be on, and obviously uh, your executive team needs to be on. It goes back to you know how I was saying that ransomware, uh, uh, the ransomware ecosystem isn't just uh, one big thing; it's a lot of spokes on the wheel. It's the same thing with risk management. If you're running a company that is really more dependent on technology, and in 2021, what company isn't very dependent on technology at this point, you're going to need to have an ongoing risk management conversation that includes all of the entities that I just mentioned, because it it really is vital for understanding what is going or what needs to happen in the face of a cyber attack. I want to go back to your, your cyber scoop days here for a moment, because you did a
0: really great job and you've done some really great content there. But there was an interview you did in 2017 with Duo Security co-founder Dung Sung. And in the interview, he stated the following that really stood out to me because this is really relevant to our audience. There was a time in the industry that seatbelts were an aftermarket option for vehicles. And then you had Ralph Nader. And then all of a sudden, you had safety built in. That's what's happened in security. And that's why it's a very healthy element where security is built in instead of being bolted on. Because who wants to manage all that? This you couldn't have, he couldn't have said it better with the Ralph Nader Ralph with that whole thing did a lot of really great saved a tremendous amount of lives countless lives and then you, and then you, then uh, Mr Song is putting it in from a cyber security perspective in the old days you go to Best Buy and you buy a product nobody cared about security oh let's plug it into the internet okay I can watch my movie or I can play my Xbox or PlayStation yippee hooray so I today completely changed you've got vpns and firewalls hardware software all sorts of really great gizmos for security um and the products but how much security is truly built into products today is it i don't mean to be rude or blunt but is a lot of it marketing if you don't really know how to turn
1: it on it's not there's not a lot of security built into stuff but it is getting better because the past four or five years, or even going back 10 years has been so bad that people are starting to wake up and go, oh, wait, we need to secure this. I mean, if you've ever seen an interview with Vint Cerf, who is known as one of the godfathers uh, of the internet, talks about how when he first built the internet, you know, they weren't thinking about how people were going to weaponize it. They just wanted to share academic information back or forth. He, he has gone on to say, you know, never in my wildest dreams that I think that we would have malicious use of this. So that really hasn't been uh, the impetus for internet connected stuff since the internet itself was connected. So a lot of what you're seeing now is is it's starting to get better, but it goes back to the trade-off. There is a trade-off of security versus convenience, basically. And going back to the seatbelt thing, if it was a pain to put on a seatbelt, you probably wouldn't wear it. I mean, the fact that it's so easy it takes ten seconds, and uh, not even ten seconds, two seconds, and it saves your life. It's convenient. It's a, it's secure and convenient. We do not have that right now in cybersecurity. It is a trade off. It is secure or convenient, and I mean, and this happens even in. My life too. I use a password manager and I use multi factor authentication, but there are times where I spend two or three minutes just trying to sign in to my email to read an email. And even I, who, uh, I, you know, this is everyday life, I get frustrated with it too because I want that information now. I mean, we all want the convenience that technology gives us, but if the security slows us down, that mean that makes it inconvenient and we're, we collectively are not going to do that. So people are hard at work trying to find ways to make security as seamless as possible so that it is baked in. And so you aren't even thinking about it and the convenience of whatever product or software that you're using is just there and you're secure without even thinking about it. That is going to take years to get to as just a standard of technology as a whole. But I think that you're starting to see the building blocks being laid in some of the products that are coming out now.
0: The building blocks being laid are fantastic. I'm going to stay in the automotive theme here because if you look at the electric vehicle versus the gas vehicle, well, the gas vehicle is convenient. There's thousands of gas stations around. You go pump it up, you, you go on your way. EVs not convenient. You have to, unless you're going to a Tesla supercharger, which was 25,000 in, in the United States, you have to wait hours to charge it. Not convenient, and so, but we're, but society is, is shifting towards electric vehicles. I'm not going to put a, a time frame on it because I don't truly know when we're going to get there. I start thinking about this and thinking about cybersecurity and, and reading your in- incredible blogs at Intel Four Seven One. I said, wait a second. If can a cyber person take control of electric vehicle, get onto the grid and wreak havoc, or lock somebody in the vehicle? Are are, are the are today are are electric vehicles secure from cyber attacks when they
1: are plugged in to charge since there is quote unquote a connection there? So I don't think that the, the, the scenario that you talk about somebody going in through, let's just say a Tesla, going in through an internet connected Tesla that is plugged in and that can somehow wreak havoc on the grid. I, I don't think that that i don't believe that that is technically feasible right now and also i that that just seems to be from a criminal perspective a roundabout way to causing some damage if if and we've seen this already if they're going to go after the grid they're just going to go after uh, the powers that be that, that power the grids around the world whether it's power companies here in america or other power companies like Saudi Aramco, I bring up Saudi Aramco because I know Saudi Aramco actually has tried or somebody has tried to hack Saudi Aramco with uh, malware that has gone or uh, that could have caused uh, a lot of damage to the grid out in Saudi Arabia. So that's where uh, hackers are concentrated. They're not going to go in through your through your Tesla. That's just not the, the way that it works, where the danger is with whether it's an EV car or a hybrid or anything like that right now is the internet connected systems that are in those cars. There was a very famous uh, research project done, I think this was in 2015 or 2016, in Wired Magazine, probably one of the best security stories that Wired Magazine's done in the past decade, where a gentleman by the name of Charlie Miller hacked into a Jeep while it was moving on the highway and did it for research purposes, but showed that what was possible with a, an internet connected car. You, you you can, and he just showed the, the gentleman that was driving it, wide reporter, wasn't going very fast. And you know, there wasn't no a loss of life or anything like that, but just sort of slowed a car going 30 miles an hour, slowly halted it to zero. That was in 2015. I mean, so imagine what is, is possible now. Cars are big computers, just like anything else out there right now everything uh, more and more has a chip in it including your cars cars have millions of lines of code that go into it tons of chips that go into it and in one way or another if it's an infotainment system or if it's internet connected once it goes into the shop and needs to be fixed um there's a, a potential for malware to get in there and for damage to be done so that's really where the the threat lies in in cars Anything that has a chip in it and can be connected to the Internet, the, it runs the risk of something bad happening to it if it stays connected to the Internet and it's not protected.
0: QNX, which is a BlackBerry subsidiary, I've been reading, they got vulnerabilities in their automotive-grade system, and, and they're desperately working to try and close those. this You brought up a good question. Over-the-air updates in the future, every car is going to have over-the-air updates that are, that are going to affect the driving. Does that become a target for a bad actor to try and put ransomware on the over-the-air update to get into the vehicle? and or, or how do you secure that?
1: that? That can happen. Updates that are pushed can be weaponized uh, as well. The, the way that you secure that is through digital certificates and making sure what is sent is being sent by the person that is meant to send it. But there are ways of hijacking that process as well. If you look, at, uh, there was an attack in Ukraine that primarily started based on a software update that was pushed in Ukraine. It was tax software, basically. It was tax software that was popular in Ukraine and Eastern Europe that was weaponized, basically. It was weaponized by Russia and it was pushed out and uh, it caused a bunch of havoc. And that was, I mean, it wasn't an over-the-air update, but it was a software update. It was an update the same way that we get updates for our uh, operating systems on our phone, or, or, or computers, or anything like that. Those can be weaponized uh, by um, people who ha- are very technically savvy. They aren't necessarily criminals. I would say the the Ukraine instance that I just brought up that looked to be uh, an espionage operation, but um, that stuff can be weaponized nonetheless. And uh, it is, you know, it, it is something that th- this is the world. This is the world that we live in right now where, it, like I keep saying, if something is internet uh, connected and we depend on all of this infrastructure for running our lives, our businesses, our livelihoods, it can be weaponized and it can be very scary to be on uh, the butt end of that. So in order not to be on the butt end of that, you, we really need to have conversations inside our companies and inside of our governments and inside of our organizations on what needs to be done in order to protect our, our infrastructure.
0: Protecting our infrastructure is key. It's not just physical security. It's software security. It's cybersecurity. It's something that companies need to invest in, because if you don't, the outcome is not going to be good, because some bad actor is going to, to take advantage of that. Greg, we, we, we've we covered a lot of different topics, a lot of different industries. and I'd love to know, What are some of the major trends that you see coming in cybercrime? Is there something emerging and bubbling up where bad actors are targeting that you think is gonna become mainstream news in the Wall Street Journal the Financial Times in months or a year from now?
1: I actually do. I think we've spent a lot of time talking about ransomware, but I would say from a money perspective, ransomware isn't the leader in terms of losses inside the US. What is, in terms of cybercrime, is a scheme called Business Email Compromise, or BEC for short. And this is not something that takes a whole lot of skill. It is not technically savvy. Uh, what happens is somebody basically sends an email to a person in a company that is, you know, whether it's accounts payable or somebody that is responsible for wiring money in terms of making sure the business keeps running. It's an email that is basically spoofed. That says, Hey, I'm Joe supplier. Here is the bill that you owe us uh, for, uh, what we supplied you with. Please make sure that you wire, let's just say $500,000 to this bank account and make sure that you do it now because you are, uh, uh you're behind on payment and. Somebody in your organization doesn't see that as malicious or anything. That's just normal business. Wires that money out. And then the real Joe supplier comes and says, that wasn't me. Like you just sent, who knows who you sent that to. So there are people out there that understand the way that your business works, who your suppliers are, who your third parties are, how much the bills generally are, and will send you a very well-crafted email saying, please pay me and it looks exactly like an invoice would any other time. And suddenly you're out however much money that bill was based on the fact that you, somebody in your company got duped. Like I say, that's not technically sophisticated, that there's no real code that goes into that. It's just an email that's saying, please send it to this bank account and it's the wrong bank account for you to be sending that to. That happens all the time. That happens all the time. I believe the FBI, just put out in their latest internet crime report for this past year that it was 43 percent of all cybercrime was business email compromises and i know that it's gotten so bad that the the federal government if you were to call the fbi the fbi really can't do anything for you unless you're losing uh the baseline that it takes for losses is a million dollars they're not going to pick up the phone unless it's more than a million dollars and that's happening all the time. It is absolutely happening uh, all the time.
0: Thank you for, for shining a light. And that. I, I, I've termed it in my little head, the invoice scam. Because there was this in uh, Bloomberg Week does some incredible reporting. And they did this incredible piece on this gentleman. He wanted to be the like the rich kids of Instagram. He's bragging about all this money he has and all the Lambos and rolls and Louis Vuitton this Louis Vuitton that bragging this whole lifestyle private jet this. And so somebody got a tip, the guy doesn't have any money, there's no heirs, he's, he's not an heir to a fortune, Some, somebody went digging, he was running an invoice scam, and Bloomberg Businessweek did this incredible breakdown of this whole scam that this gentleman ran, and then we went and got him in Dubai. Dubai turned him over Yep. and and everything. And this guy had cash in sneaker boxes hidden throughout the house.
1: Yep, I believe you are talking about, uh, he went as Hush Puppy. Yes, uh, yes, yes, thank you. Yes, yes he was hush, uh, hush Puppy. So not only was he running invoice scams, but it was also moving money for other cybercrime gangs. And I believe that was part of the reason that we went after him, that not only was he doing the invoice scam, but he was moving money for other bigger organized crime gangs in, in the cyber realm that we finally had, you know, a rap sheet on him enough to go after him. And yeah, you're right, we did. The US went out and and finally got him. I don't believe he's, he might have been sentenced. I don't know, you'd have to double check for me. But yeah, I, I know the gentleman that you're talking about and I know we finally put him in cuffs. But that goes back to the point that I was making with how hard it is to get these criminals. This guy was, you know, transnational and just flaunting his wealth on Instagram. He wasn't trying to hide. And yet it took us so long. It took the US so long to go after him and actually put him in cuffs. That's the the, the, the wheels of justice really do turn slow when it comes to trying to arrest the people behind cybercrime. Why in God's name are you going to brag on Instagram? you
0: got a target on your back. It's this arrogance and at some point there's going to be a breakthrough with the UN and we're going to be able to go get these people and we're going to throw them in jail where they belong for the, the harm that they've done to society and, and don't flaunt it. Greg, I've learned a ton and there's still one thing I want to know though as I bring this conversation full circle. How did you first become interested in cyber security?
1: I first became interested in cyber security covering technology overall at US News. I used to write for US News and World Report. I would say about a decade ago. And that was around the time that the Edward Snowden stuff spilled out. And uh, I had always been interested in espionage as a whole, just in in common society, you know, watching spy movies, reading spy novels, whatever. But I will be honest, I was, how old was I at the time? Probably, I was 26, 27 years old. I had no idea what the NSA was. I, I had never heard of the NSA. Had no idea what was going on and the Snowden leaks kind of opened my eyes to this world. And I, uh, when I was writing for US News, I was based in Washington, DC. So reading about this and realizing that I was surrounded by this digital espionage society and this ecosystem, and that it was in my backyard, I just dove into it more. And the more and more uh, I realized is that a lot of it had to deal with cybersecurity. And this world of digital espionage and cybersecurity, it's fascinating. It's never boring, uh, despite the fact that I just got done saying that risk management is boring. That that part I will say is boring. But I, I will at least say this, that the boring parts are the nece- are, are necessities. <laughs> so it, it it still matters. It may not be sexy, but it still matters. I think it's just becoming the way of the world. Look, we, we are moving into an age as a society where we are depending more and more on technology every in every facet of our lives. And in order for that to continue, it's going to need to be more and more secure. So as we continue onto that path, there's going to be news, there's going to be things to drive interest, there's going to be things to discover, and I love writing about it.
0: Keep doing it, because your, your writing's great. It, it is going to stay interesting. But what is the future of cybersecurity? Is it just going to be individuals are just so... Proactive to the risks, or is it just going to be completely embedded into everything we use by default?
1: I think it's going to have to be embedded into everything we use by default. It goes back to that security versus convenience conversation that we have. When you have something that is secure and convenient, well, why wouldn't you use it? It's 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 you know two birds with one stone. Back to the seatbelt metaphor. The seatbelt is secure and convenient. It's in the cars. They Once they became standard, I mean, I'm sure once you look at the the data, I don't have that data on hand, but if you look at the data at what happened after seat belts were standardizing cars, car deaths dropped. They absolutely uh, had to drop. Once we get to that point in cybersecurity, you're going to see things be a lot more secure and you're not gonna see ransomware uh, headlines and you're not gonna see BEC scams. So once it becomes secure, and convenient, we're going to enter that new paradigm. And I really do believe that that paradigm is going to be the future of cybersecurity.
0: That future is going to be a wonderful future. And Greg, as we look to wrap up this extremely, I want to say extremely insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to, to take away with them?
1: On an individual level, there are some small things that you can do to really protect yourself. One I would say is invest in a password manager. There are free options out there or paid ones. I use a paid one, but the, the free ones are just as secure. There, there is is no difference between a, a, a free one uh, and a paid one. Use a password manager just because remembering all of your passwords is a pain. Writing all of them down is insecure and using bad passwords like your birth date and your pet's name is, the hackers know that. And it's very easy for them to go on your Facebook page and look up your dog's name and find out when you were born and get into your, your systems that, that is baseline easy for them to do. And also turn on multi-factor authentication. There are many different ways uh, to do it. There are apps that can help you with it. There are many one-time password apps that can either send you a code in an email, send you a code in an app, or send you a code in a text message that text messages, People are starting to move away from using text message codes it's still better than no multi-factor authentication but find what fits for you and use multi-factor authentication on any service that allows you to do it it will save you a world of hurt uh, whether it is from a financial standpoint or just from a peace of mind definitely use these these are easy ways for you to protect yourself on the internet They're
0: not only easy ways, they're smart ways. And as you heard, thanks to Greg's security strategy with multi-factor, somebody's not getting in there and posting inappropriate things on his Instagram account where he has a lot of explaining to do. So go, (laughs) Greg, and follow Greg's lead in putting multi-factor because people could put bad messages. It can cause you a lot of damage from a variety of reasons. So multi-factor, strong passwords, have incredible cyber health because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is cybersecurity. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. Join us next time when I sit down with the head of industrial design at Zoox to discuss the reinvention of personal transportation in dense urban environments. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing us at podcast.sae.org. That's podcast at SAE.org. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn to stay connected and to continue the conversation. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.